You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. Hello, aviation nerds. You know, there comes a time in every aviation podcasting host slash pilot's life when you have to go fly for the day and leave your podcasting partner to do an interview all by her lonesome. And unfortunately, that day was today for Mr. Hernandez. (sighs) He will be missed on this one. But no fear. I am here to carry the torch that is getting all of you hooked on aviation, and I do not take that responsibility lightly. So let's get the mood back up and talk aviation. Our next guest hails all the way from Norway. Very talented utility pilot and photographer you guys might know as at that helicopter guy. I know I've been a big fan for about a year now, and he's here to chat about helicopters. He's here to chat about how he found his passion for aviation and his career path that he took and why he chose the route that he did, benefits of working as the loadmaster prior to getting into that right seat, safety, and his favorite risk assessment model. So here he is. Tom Ostrom. It's about mitigating the risk that you can and then kind of accepting that there are some things you won't be able to do much about. Hi, I'm Tom Östlem, and I'm forever on the fly. Hey, um, you're that helicopter guy, right? That's correct. I, <laughs> I think I've seen you around. Well, dude, I love your photography. I, I've been following you on Instagram for a while now. Thank you, and likewise, and thank you for having me. I really love it when I can see pilots and people in aviation integrate creativity into aviation and into their AV careers. What came first? Did your passion for photography come first, or did you get into aviation and then kind of figure out later on that you wanted to combine the two? It was definitely aviation first. So that's been a childhood dream of mine to fly. So I'm basically living my dream, and then eventually I realized that, you know, Taking pictures, that's kind of cool. Uh, I had a, uh, while I was a loadmaster, I flew with a pilot who brought his camera along. And I started borrowing his camera for a little bit and then decided to buy my own. And that's how I got started. Uh, and obviously, I didn't anticipate uh, it going this far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's been, a, it's been a fun ride. And it's, it's nice being able to, to share some of the views, albeit, you know, the more pretty sides of the job. I mean, definitely see a lot of other stuff that's not right there on Instagram all the time, but it's, it's fun to be able to share a bit at least. Yeah. You know, those of us who like sharing our, our jobs on social media, we do what we can to share what we can about the work that we do and the things that we get to see. We can't show it all, unfortunately, but now you did mention to me before that, you know, flying has always been a childhood dream of yours. Um, Can you just run us through your story? So what, initially sparked that passion for aviation and how did you get to where you are today well it's just ever since i was little i've had like this romanticized view about flying you know it's pure magic you know and uh, that kind of stuck with me but for a long while in my childhood i didn't kind of think that i could be a pilot it kind of seemed like something you had to be like an extraordinary human being to you know be able to uh, to get to that point so i didn't really think I was going to be able to go that path until I actually started, well, maybe just before high school, I started seeing that, okay, so these are actually people, you know, Uh, I can, I can definitely give this a shot. So uh, that's when I started kind of 
doubling down on, you know, thinking about how can I, uh, you know, make a career in aviation. And uh, I very quickly realized that this, considering my romanticized view of flying and I wanted to be a pilot pilot. And, and this is not, you know, talking down anyone that's flying highly automated helicopters and anything like that. But to me, it was very much about being able to kind of master the machinery by your own, by yourself. And, uh, uh, and uh, I've, I, after having done a lot of research, I realized that helicopters was a very good, uh, good entry uh, into that and kind of a, an area or a segment of aviation that is very specialized mm-hmm. and, uh, and that requires uh, a lot of training. You know, it, it doesn't take that long to learn how to fly, but it takes a long time to master a helicopter. And obviously, you know, we're never fully taught, but it's, I kind of like that, you know, it's kind of a craft mm-hmm. and it takes time to to get there. So, so I started tinkering a bit with uh, flight simulators in high school and uh, that kind of, uh, yeah, just cemented my view that this is something I want to do. It was really interesting. And, uh, I started taking glider lessons in high school that didn't really pan out because of the logistics uh, that were very, very tricky to get a hold on. I did some paragliding because that was easier. And uh, then I got sidetracked for a little bit in the army. I tried out for the Air Force, did not make that cut, which was a major setback for me at the time. And it was kind of hard to to kind of be motivated after that. So I instead of joining... Uh, the Air Force here because we have to do a year of mandatory service here in Norway. I decided to join the Army. I wanted to get as far away from Air Force bases and anything like that. So mm. I I joined an armored um, uh, battalion and uh, kind of didn't think about aviation that much until maybe six months prior to getting out of that service. I decided that, oh, you know what? I know other pilots who did the same thing. They tried out for the Air Force Academy and failed. Um, and, you know, it's it's not easy to get in. The year I applied, I think they had a thousand plus applicants for like 12 positions. Okay. So I did realize that it's possible to uh, <laughs> to become a pilot and not, you know, go the Air Force way to, to get go about it. So... So that's kind of, uh, I, I started finding my motivation gradually. Uh, but then again, I was sidetracked by a job offer in the army and I stayed on in the army for another three years. Uh, I had a great time there. But at that point, when those three years were up, I realized that now it's time to get down to flying. And uh, so I started a flight school here in Norway and uh, had a lot of fun. I realized very early on that, uh, you know, it's very easy to kind of always think about what's next, you know, but I wanted to take a minute to kind of enjoy what I had at the time. And you probably won't have as much freedom uh, when it comes to flying uh, in your career any other place uh, later on. So I decided to do uh, my best in terms of appreciating the freedom I had in flight mm-hmm. school. Whenever I had solo flights or navigation flights, cross-country flights, I tried to think outside the box a little bit and just try to keep it fun, you know, and actually enjoy the fact that you're out here flying. 
So that was that was fun. I definitely think the most fun I ever had was when I was in flight school, but you don't realize it because the grass is always greener, right? On the other yeah, side, yeah. like, okay, I just have to get through flight school so that I can get to my dream job. I can get to the dream platform that I want to be flying. But yeah, what people really don't realize is like, yo, you have your own aircraft and you get to go on these cross countries and hey, let's just go get lunch over in Catalina, at least over here, you know, which is something that I think a lot of students... Um, because to get motivated to get through flight school, because it's so much work and you're working so hard to attain a goal, like you forget to enjoy the journey along the way. So I think that's a really important message, but totally like we romanticize aviation before we actually get into it. We see these pilots as like, like gods, right? <laughs> like, Oh my yeah. God, like I can't, I want to be you someday. And I, I hear that from people too, where it just sounds like they're romanticizing the job as if it's not an attainable goal, but it totally is like, we're all human. I mean, definitely some pilots that I've met where you're like, okay, you are definitely not a God dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. yeah, for sure. Yeah. You yeah, can yeah. do it. Anyway. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. Not gonna name any names, but <laughs> there's definitely been some people along the way. You're like, okay, bro. Like, it's kind of funny, but I hope I don't come off as like sounding superior. Like, I'm definitely. Oh, no. No, I'm that's, like, I think everyone can relate to that one. So, it's definitely not God's gift to flying. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I have my own faults, obviously, like we all do, but we learn from them, right? We learn from the mistakes yeah. we make along the way. And that's, ultimately how we grow as pilots is like it's so annoying when you see people that are flying uh, flying s92s for example offshore and being very superior towards people that are flying an r44 on sightseeing for example i mean it's not a competition you know it's mm -hmm. and you're just as much a pilot if you're flying the 44 as a 92 you just have a different you have different things you have to focus on you know right. it's a different job but i mean they're you're both pilots and flying a Robinson doesn't mean you're any less of a pilot. And I just hate it where people kind of draw those conclusions. And, and that's, you know, with every kind of career, you know, it's the, 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 your job title doesn't reflect the person you are at all. And it should not come off in any other way that, you know, you're your own individual and um, what you do is, you know, doesn't really matter <laughs> that much it's how you do your job if you're flying that 44 if you're being irresponsible and disregarding rules and regulations and limitations obviously you're not fit to fly that but you could be flying an s92 and be violating the procedures just as much mm -hmm. so it's more about how you do your job than you know what kind of aircraft you're doing that job in so it's all about the airmanship and uh, making sure you uh, you you do your best in terms of decision-making and getting everyone back home safely. Yeah. I mean, if you can fly an R-22, you can basically fly anything. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I know. I mean, I would like to see, you know, and that was really humbling. I, When I came to Heli Expo in January, I I got to go flying with York from uh, iFlyHeli mm -hmm. on Instagram. And um, I was really grateful uh, for being able to, to go with him. And uh, we took the Catalina run, which was amazing at sunset it was just oh, yeah that was pure gold it was very humbling because i mean i took the controls uh and the cruise there on our way in way out there and then i was tasked with landing as we came back and let me tell you that was humbling for sure i mean 
I that was not pretty. That was not the, pretty at all. That was in the 505, yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought for sure that, you know, I, yeah, I've flown 22s, you know, that was 12 years ago and yeah. not for a whole lot. And that was, that really kind of, that was very humbling. I mean, okay, you're I'm so glad. used to flying the 350 and, uh, and getting that experience. And I mean, I was able to land eventually, but it was not pretty. I looked like a student pilot and yeah, that was definitely humbling. So you went through flight school and did you already have a job in mind of, of a career path that you wanted? Did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i kind of geeky in the way that when I set my eyes on something, I kind of double down on doing the research uh, and, and all that. And I, so I, um, I did a lot of research into the market that I wanted to fly. I pictured myself, okay, so what is the job I want to, what's my dream job? And I started kind of, talking to people that was doing that at the time and uh, figuring out how I could uh, kind of duplicate their paths uh, career-wise. And I actually linked up with a couple of guys who were out flying in the company that I'm now flying for um, at uh, an extreme sports event where they were flying uh, parachute jumpers. And I actually tagged along with them for a couple of days. Uh, I was about maybe 17 or something at the time. Uh, so I tagged along a bit and um, I realized that, yeah, this is definitely the kind of flying I want to get into. I knew that utility flying was, you know, in terms of what I was saying before, this being a craft and it takes a long time to kind of get good at it. Uh, I figure utility is kind of sort of the pinnacle of that in many ways. To me, utility flying is what I see as the pinnacle. That obviously doesn't mean that there are not other uh, parts of the industry that are um, at least as challenging and uh, requires uh, as much skills to operate uh, different kind of helicopters and operations. So, But to me, that's a very, uh, you know, that pure hand flying thing is very important while obviously you have very many other um, uh, uh, areas uh, within rotary aviation that are just as challenging and say just instructing for example i mean that must take so much patience and so much skill to get that and i mean i would not make a good instructor for sure <laughs> so uh, so i don't want to yeah it's uh, i just i kind of found my area of interest and i'm very happy that i was able to 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 try that out yeah, I mean, flight instruction, I know a lot of pilots who wish they could have just completely skipped over that step in building their flight time. But I know when I was an instructor, it was definitely, it's just a whole different set of challenges, right? I know about 98% of my students, English was not their first language. So that right there was already its own set of challenges. And let alone teaching multiple students at the same time and everyone has a different style of learning, that's something that you have to adapt to as an instructor. Just totally different styles of flying. Not one is superior than the other. And, you know, I probably would have stayed in instructor, instruction a little bit longer if the paycheck matched the amount of work that you actually put down, I would say I probably made about $23,000 a year working sometimes six days a week teaching, you know, 10 students at a time. It just wasn't worth it for me. You know, it's, it was time to move on and get to the next level. 
All right. So where are we in your story now? So far, you've linked up with the utility company that you had your heart set on and have done a couple of ride-alongs and you're trying to figure out how you can mimic the route that they took to get to where they are. So what was the route that you ended up taking? So I spoke with them and realized that since I'm going to be flying in Norway uh, and uh, most operators doing that will not have a specific requirement in terms of flight hours because in Norway, the general route is through uh, through the loadmaster route or ground crew before you become a pilot in utility operations. So it wouldn't matter if I had 140 hours from, from Norway or 1,000 hours flying patterns in Florida as an instructor. So I decided that since I wasn't going the offshore route, which would have definitely benefited from having taken the training in the U.S. and hopefully gotten an instructor job there, I decided to stick closer to where the job was so that I can do some some networking as well. You knew you had a goal. You wanted to fly utility. And even working just as ground crew, you're getting on-the-job training. You're still getting to fly with the pilots and getting to learn the mission first rather than necessarily learning the equipment and the actual skill of the flying, which I think is really beneficial. So how do you think that that helped you in the long run? How long were you ground crew for and uh, before you actually got to get behind the stick? Yeah, so I spent three years as a loadmaster before I became a trainee. And uh, in those three years, um, you're basically handling all the groundwork in terms of, uh, you know, getting all the loads ready, making sure that they're secure, hooking the loads, refueling. Uh, you'd be doing fuel logistics, like driving fuel from A to B, uh, driving equipment. You'd be washing the helicopters and doing all that, you know, typical ground crew work. Uh, so, and, but as you said, I mean, you're, in there in the cockpit, you know, when you're flying from A to B or when you're flying people uh, to various sites or you're doing photo missions or anything like that. So you pick up a lot and you're flying with, especially in my company, uh, we have approximately uh, 14 um, AS350s at the time. And um, you pick up a lot of stuff from different people. So you kind of pick the good, the, the good qualities of, of the various pilots and kind of visualize, okay, so this is definitely a good habit. I want to take this with me when I start flying. Mm -hmm. So that was very, very beneficial, being able to see. I mean, there are so many ways of doing a job. Some are definitely better than others, though. So I tried to, to pick up some stuff there. And then once you start the trainee route, or like the final, uh, final route there, which is kind of, you're kind of doing a little bit of both. Uh, it's a very gradual transition into the right-hand seat and doing things on your own. So you'll start out flying uh, flying simple taxi missions or sightseeing flights and stuff like that. And then eventually you'll start flying a load here and there, uh, simple loads, just big bags to very <laughs> kind locations that doesn't really require the precision that you, you later have to rely on. So... I think it was a very, very gradual transition. It was very nice to be able to to get it as, I mean, I, I would definitely not complain if I had gotten there 
faster. <laughs> I mean, three years is a long time. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we have guys now, unfortunately, who spent twice that. And the reason for that, obviously, is that even though we only hire pilots from our pool of loadmasters, we still need, I mean, there needs to be opening okay. uh, openings for pilots. And that hasn't been the case for a while in this current market, which is very sad, unfortunately. But that's kind of the, the thing that limits that. So you don't know getting in there how long you're going to be on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that could be frustrating at times, not knowing what's going to come up ahead. Right. It's not exactly guaranteed that you're going to be getting into the pilot seat anytime soon until somebody leaves the company. And if it's a good company, I guess you know, people would probably be sticking in there for a while. Um, yeah. so I guess you're, you're pretty lucky that three years as a ground crew member and then a year as a trainee, that's, that's pretty good. Even though it took you longer, the mission first and then being able to focus on the precision flying, because you know, obviously, like you said, that's kind of the pinnacle um, a lot of people believe that too. It's just that utility is so is so um, such a precision type of flying. You, know, you see these guys slinging you know Christmas trees <laughs> on YouTube videos like crazy people. You know that takes a tremendous amount of skill. <laughs> yeah. Even with what I'm doing, and I'm just flying charter. You know, super simple from point A to point B. Bring this crew. Bring you know this organ from point A to point B, not doing any off airport stuff, literally just flying and learning the new machine, which is a more complex machine than I've ever flown before, um, the AW109. And after we pass our check rides, they still have us sit in the other seat riding along with other pilots, even after we've passed our check ride for X period of time until you get comfortable learning the mission and also kind of like learning the aircraft along the way as well so i really like that about the way that our company operates as well it's it's as you said i mean it's uh, in utility flying there are so many so much many logistics you know there are so many on a on one project you could have three different subcontractors that need have different needs you know and from your vantage point kind of serving all three of them you have a unique perspective on okay so how can we get this done the best way possible for all parties involved. So being able to 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 get an understanding of that logistical side of it mm-hmm. definitely made it easier. And also so the fact that when you are released into the wild as a pilot, once you're done, it's single pilot. So, I mean, you have a loadmaster with you who's a pilot or, um, yeah, he's a helicopter pilot, obviously. But at the same time, you're very much kind of on your own. You don't have any senior members except on check rides that are kind of looking over your shoulders and kind of... Yeah, you kind of have to make sure that you don't have bring any bad habits into that. So so I was very, very happy to get that chance to learn from the other guys. And hopefully I haven't uh, picked up many bad habits along the way. I mean, we all have them, but it's all about minimizing them as much as possible. Right. And what, what equipment are you flying now? I'm flying the um, the AS350 uh, most of the time. I also did the type rating on the Super Puma uh, earlier this year. So that's uh, so much fun. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mentioned before I'm a geek, and that thing it's old. It's the first production Super Puma. It was the first one to roll up the assembly line, and oh, cool. so it's vintage 
proper vintage but it's so much fun and i love that i i love the fact that it's old and that it's you have the old analog cockpit and everything it's just uh, the photographer in me at least i i think that has a much more aesthetically pleasing look than all glass cockpits we have mm-hmm. we have three augusta westland 169s or leonardo 169s flying for a marine uh, pilot transfer operation and it's all computer screens. I mean, I get that at home on my flight simulator, you know? It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I definitely get the increased situational awareness and, you know, in bad weather and all that, I would definitely be in the 169 if I had a, had a choice. But it is something to me as an enthusiast, it's very rewarding to be able to operate a machine like that and kind of getting that, how should I put it, you know, Things are definitely evolving in the way where the pilot is being reduced more and more to a systems operator. And to so still kind of having, yeah, so still being able to kind of feel that you're actually operating the machinery and it's not, you know, just monitoring the machinery doing its job. So I, I definitely like that. Yeah, I, I like to feel like I'm, <laughs> it sounds so cheesy, one with the machine, <laughs> but but really like getting into yeah. the 109 has been really cool because of the automation. And I'm like, okay, if I was in IFR or got hit with any bad weather, um, that's the machine that I would want to be in with the automation. I could just press a button. Literally, if I start getting disoriented, you just hit the go around button. It puts you in a stable 700 foot per minute climb. Yeah, that's really <laughs> For safety, yeah. safety wise, that's really, really nice. But I love like the 350. <laughs> yeah, Air, yeah, Air, yeah. Airbus products are like, <laughs> I got, got my hat here. <laughs> I'm always wearing this hat. Um, I love Airbus products. So, like, it'd be really cool to check out the Super Puma. Um, and, yeah, uh, it's, and it's so easy to fly. I mean, that was, I mean, if you have flown any other helicopter, I mean, it's so, so easy. I mean, just, flying it i mean operating it is a different story but flying it is very rewarding and especially when you come from the uh, you know the nervous 350 uh, you know landings can throw the most seasoned seasoned pilot off sometimes so being able to land a smooth and stable helicopter like the super puma on you know landing gear like proper wheels and stuff with a smooth mm-hmm. suspension it's so rewarding when you do that the first time oh it's just pure yeah, it's uh, it's really nice. It's a very fun machine to fly. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you get to still fly it on missions? Or I mean, you got your type rating, um, but you said you're mostly flying the 350. Yeah, yeah, we don't fly that as much, and there are a few of us. So yeah, it, it varies a lot. I probably won't be flying that a whole lot, but hopefully. Uh, a bit from time to time, a couple of times, uh, you know, uh, every other month, hopefully. So what I will definitely, yeah. well, that'll be, that'll be utility missions mostly. Uh, so, uh, and uh, in the beginning now, that will obviously be as pilot monitoring for, uh, for the, uh, the sling load work. So, but hopefully come next year, I'll be able to get a chance to try the long line on that as well. That would be really interesting to try. Yeah, that's cool. So, Does it have like um, like a lot of stabilization? I mean, you said everything's pretty analog. But yeah, it, it, like- it has, you know, the, the it is stabilized, uh, but, but, you know, it's 
it's old and you know in terms of automation you have uh, heading hold airspeed hold and altitude hold <laughs> so that's you know the whole suite of, of automation but it, it's quite stable uh, so it definitely uh, yeah it should be interesting to try but you know when you've never tried it before i mean i haven't even tried you know with an em- empty long line you never know what you're, how it's gonna be until you actually try it. So I, I, I don't really, I don't want to speculate how much into what that's gonna be like. But I definitely look forward to that. I bet, man. Let me know how that goes. And circling back to our original conversation about risk mitigation and safety, which is something I really wanted to drive into this episode, seeing as it is your forte, holding the safety manager, the very important role of safety manager at your company. Was there anything in particular that inspired you to take on that role? Was that something you've always wanted to do? Being in the army, you, I, we had a couple of incidents and experiences that led me to realize that, uh, you know, we sometimes you operate in a in a risk-filled environment, uh, but that doesn't mean you should accept any risk. Um, so it became apparent to me that. In many cases, it's about mitigating the risk that you can and then kind of accepting that there are some things you won't be able to to do much about, you know. Mm-hmm. And I kind of realized that moving into aviation as well and um, having seen what can happen and, uh, you know, having lost friends uh, in, in aviation as well, you, you realize that this is definitely not, a regular job in many aspects and it is a risk-filled environment but it's yeah uh, I just realized that I kind of have an eye for seeing the risks that need that will always be inherent but what can we do to mitigate those risks as much as possible and more than anything else I mean what are unnecessary risks and why do we take unnecessary risks so the whole risk reward uh, concept is very important to me and uh, so for me it was I I just showed an interest in that and I think the company kind of picked up on it and they kind of nurtured that uh, that interest into that field so I kind of went through ranks uh, from I started out as a navigation officer actually because I took a special interest in in, in obstacle and obstacle awareness. Uh, so we developed some systems there to kind of increase the situational awareness uh, in the cockpit. And and then I became a safety advisor and um, uh, aided in, um, in the safety promotion work, uh, investigations and stuff like that. Then became a senior safety advisor before I became the safety manager. So the company was very accommodating and uh, yeah, nurtured my interest for, for flight safety in a very good way, I think. So it's been interesting to, to, I mean, I love flying, but it's definitely interesting to be able to affect the safety aspect of it as well. Yeah, it's super interesting and super important to have somebody like you within a company as a safety manager to create the right environment and to set the stage for a safe working environment that could potentially save people's lives in the long run. And there's so many different models out there that we can use to assess and mitigate risk. And throughout my career, mostly, you know, even in the Coast Guard, we'd go out on a search and rescue mission, we'd have to do a standard green, amber, red risk assessment model to determine whether or not it's going to be a go or a no-go. 
And it's very simple, you know, environment, pilot, crew, everything gets assigned a numerical value. And eventually it all adds up to whether or not we're in the green, which means go, amber, which means use some caution. Maybe we can find a couple of things uh, within our assessment that we can change and improve on to bring our score down. And then obviously red would be a no-go. And that's just like a really basic model across the board. But there are a little bit more complex ones that we can use. But in your opinion, as a safety manager, what is your favorite risk assessment model and how does it work? Well, it's based around the green, amber, red uh, model, as you mentioned. But but with the bow tie kind of approach to it, kind of seeing where the barriers kind of fit into place. Mm-hmm. Is this something, is this a measure where we uh, reduce the likelihood of something happening? Or is this something that will reduce the consequences of that happening, you know? So say, for example, birds, you know, they're a hazard. Um, they can lead to a bird strike uh, on the windshield, which can lead to pilot incapacitation. And uh, obviously that'll be a very bad day indeed. So in terms of uh, if you if you look at that example, you can mitigate the risk um, by uh, reducing the speed in all areas of birds. That'll reduce the likelihood of the event, right? So that'll reduce the risk of you even having a bird strike. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to go further and you want to see, okay, so are there other things we can do? You can, okay, so how about we wear a visor? We wear a helmet and a visor. That could maybe, if you're lucky, mitigate uh, the effects of a bird strike through the windshields to the fact that you're not going to face a pilot incapacitation uh, anymore. So I think that's a good way of seeing it and kind of being aware of what mitigating actions you're putting in place and how that kind of affects the whole scenario. And, um, and I think the most important thing for all pilots is, I mean, we, we don't have any formalized uh, procedure for doing risk assessments for every operation we do. We have standard risk assessment for standard operations. Uh, and especially in utility, I think there are so many variables depending on, you know, just the, just the weather, you know, the, on that time and place in those conditions in that valley with wicked wind chairs and all that. So uh, it's impossible to do a risk assessment for every scenario you, you encounter. So in my opinion, it's as much about making people accustomed to kind of doing these things in their head as they're flying. Flying, yep. And and especially what you were saying about, you know, you have you have several risk factors, but when you those accumulate, you know, you, that's when you go into the red, you know, overall. And you can deal with maybe one or two or three of those things and it's fine. But all of a sudden you have like six various fields of the operations that that is kind of borderline. You know, you have you didn't sleep well. You have um, a load master with you who's, uh, yeah, his first job, uh, f- first week on the job uh, as as a solo load master. And uh, the weather is really bad and you're mounting a cell phone tower, for example. And it's just, you know, one of those factors could be okay, but then you start to to add those. And, and seeing as it's impossible to kind of, do all these things like formalized in advance, 
I think it's up to the pilots to kind of like be aware of these things and uh, and you can do that easily and you can also the best way I find is to to brief that in the crew kind of see what okay so there are a lot of things that are kind of not going our way now so we got to take a step back and maybe sit tight and see if we should postpone this thing or if there are other things we can do to kind of mitigate the risks right and like you said we do these risk assessments before the flight, but it's also something that we're constantly doing while we're flying, right? That's something that we do need to get accustomed to. We're making a million decisions throughout a flight, and it's nice to have sort of an organized way to assess your risk, always going in the, on in the back of your head while you're flying, right? The PAVE model, pilot aircraft, environment, external pressures. These are all things that we should be assessing and reevaluating constantly while we're flying. And if any of those things gets beyond an acceptable amount of risk, trying to figure out ways to mitigate those items. So you're flying along, you're running into some weather, you're still within your personal and company minimums and legal minimums, but what can you do to mitigate the risks of accidentally flying into IMC and not get disoriented? All right, I'm going to slow down my airspeed. I'm going to throw on my autopilot. Doing those two things, those are already helping to bring the risk factor down. On a single flight, perhaps, you know, there are so many little variables that you have to consider. And uh, I think it's important to 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 be aware of those decisions uh, at all times because you never know. I mean, you could, you, you may have done, I mean, there are pilots that have, They've flown 9,000 hours. They've done this thing their way, their entire career, and it's been fine. But then one day the Swiss cheese is, you know, align and they have an accident. I mean, just because it's been fine uh, the other times doesn't mean it will be fine every time. Mm-hmm. So, so b- making sure that the decisions you make are sound, even though they might maybe just a minor, minor decision. Like, f- for instance, uh, we uh, at our main base – uh, we we taxi out onto more or less by the the, the threshold end of one uh, of the runway. So mm-hmm. you could either choose to depart to the east, which gives you probably a hundred meters of runway, three hundred feet, and, uh, and then um, opposite you could you you have uh, maybe fourteen hundred feet of runway. You know, so why not? Why if there are no wind conditions or anything of, uh, like that? Why wouldn't you then choose to go do the even though it takes you longer to fly the long way uh, and and use the the runway? Why won't you do that instead of taking the risk of flying, you know, you know, a dirty takeoff if you want to call it that instead of doing a textbook takeoff? It's gonna take you maybe a minute or two longer, but this could be the first flight of the day. Maybe you know after a maintenance has been done or something so i think it's prudent whenever you can to see okay it may take me a minute longer to do it this way but if something happens i'll be in a much better position to get myself out of it if Mm -hmm. it does so just kind of making sure that you plan to mess up a little bit you know it's not that you know i'm i mean i i'm so forgetful i leave things i mean i would uh, yeah i would would definitely forget where I put the keys, if it wasn't for the fact that I know that I'm forgetful. So I never leave my keys anywhere, but in my pocket or on my counter here. So I kind of try to 
mitigate the fact that I'm uh, I'm forgetful when it comes to th- stuff like that. So I have to uh, make sure that I I, I have routines uh, to 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 um, to mitigate that. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of a sliding rule too, because, you know, depending on what equipment you're in, like, you know, I fly multiple different types of aircraft and sometimes you just have to like take a minute and be like, okay, what am I in right now? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm in the 109. I have two engines versus I'm getting into an AS350 and I have one engine. So coming down to, you know, a hundred foot hover and coming straight down to a helipad might be a little bit less of a risk in a multi-engine than, you know, in an AS350. So definitely kind of taking a minute to just remember where you are, what you're flying. Um, Because once you get to a certain point and you're switching around to all different types of aircraft, that different, different types of takeoffs, it changes over platforms and, and missions. So yeah. Cool. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. I know you're, you're you look like you're super tired right now. So I, uh, <laughs> you mentioned you didn't get much sleep like, sleep lately. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk to me um, and spark these conversations about safety and and risk mitigation um, that hopefully will echo throughout the podcast sphere <laughs> and maybe reach the ears of somebody who needed to hear it today. Love your photography. I'm so excited to see, you know, more stuff that you keep bringing out on Instagram. Definitely uh, follow this guy at the hel- uh, that helicopter guy <laughs> on Instagram. Okay. Thank you for having me. I know, guys. I know. I missed Jose, too. Super bummed he couldn't be here for this one. But it was such a pleasure to talk to Tom and hear his perspective and get his insight. And... Man, what a cool place to fly up there in the Norwegian fjords. Super jealous. And I know I had a couple of really nice takeaways from our conversation today. He really hit the nail on the head with, it doesn't matter what job you have, it's how you do that job that counts. Of course, the importance of doing a proper risk assessment before your flight and how it should be an ongoing, constant thought process while you're flying And of course, taking that into your decision-making process. It's been my absolute pleasure to do this interview for you guys today. Hopefully you got some awesome takeaways like I did from Tom. And go ahead, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, leave us a comment. Of course, we love to hear from you guys. Fly safe out there and have a beautiful rest of your day. Bye.